0: October 31st. Candy given out. Candy given out. Oh. Now. Hmm? You put it in your mouth and chew it. You put it in your mouth and chew it. Chocolate candy, gummy bears. Right? Well, you're right that on October 31st most of the culture is going to be focused on On candy and spooky things and things that go bump in the night. But do you know that as Christians, we have something far better to celebrate, much more significant? Christmas. Well, no, not Christmas. (laughs) Almost. That too. But we've, we've got something called Reformation Day. Have you ever heard of Reformation Day? Uh, Henry has. <laughs> well, that's a day. Reformation Day is a day that, that we celebrate or it commemorates probably one of the greatest moves, movements of God's spirit. Really, I would dare say since the time of the apostles. Think about this. There was one single event we can think of that changed the world. There was a man, his name was Martin Luther, and he was a scholar. He saw some things wrong in the church, and so he made a list, a long list, 95 things that he thought were wrong about the church. And he had intended, he wanted to get people together and have a debate. Let's debate these things and straighten out the church. And the way that you publicize things was you didn't put them in a newspaper because they didn't really have newspapers. They had a bulletin board. But do you know what the bulletin board was where they put things like announcements? It was the front door of the church. And so he took this long list of things, 95 theses, they called them, took a hammer and a nail, boom, 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 pounded them to the front of the church door. Now, he was only expecting other scholars to debate this, but this sparked more than a debate. This revealed that the church by that time was really beyond rehabilitation. It was really... uh, It needed a reformation. And from that time on, the world would never be the same. so, So... from that point, what happened? We we think of that day. We, we want to celebrate Reformation Day and think of it as the day that the light of the gospel broke forth, broke out from darkness. You may have heard of people like Martin Luther. Have you heard of Martin Luther? And John Calvin. Yeah? No? no? Okay. John Knox and many other reformers were helping the church to find its way back to God. To find its way back to the Bible as the authority. To find its way back to understanding what faith means and what grace is. And uh, uh, they call it grace alone. Through faith alone. In Christ alone. It, it started the fires of missionary outreaches. It led to hymn writing. It led to congregational singing. That's what the Reformation brought. It led to the centrality of the sermon and preaching like this. I mean, it it was a theological and ecclesiastical and a cultural transformation. And what was going on? These people, these reformers, they were guided by a conviction that the church of their day had drifted away. Had drifted away from the essential, original teachings of Christianity. Especially when it came to the teachings about salvation. The church was teaching something that was different than what was written in Scripture how can people be forgiven of sin through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? And how can they receive eternal life with God? Well, people couldn't find that out unless they were reading the Scriptures, right? And the Reformation sought to bring things back to the original message of Jesus in the early church. But there were some struggles. Let me ask you, guys, this: and all of you, Do you memorize scripture? Do you memorize scripture verses? Yeah, what version of the Bible do you use? King James Version. You use sometimes the New King James Version. What do you use? English Standard. The English Standard. International Version. Okay. Anybody else? New American American Standard. Standard. Wow. We have so many Bible versions to choose from, don't we? But do you realize that Christians did not always have the luxury of so many versions to choose from? How many, Leo, how many Bibles do you have in your house? A lot. you've You've got one, I bet. One for your dad. One for your mom. I bet your sisters each probably have one. And there's probably some that are just sitting aside, right? It's probably the same for all of us. Can you imagine a time that the Bible was not in your language? Can you imagine a time that the Bible... You could not read it? A time that someone had to be trained in Latin to tell you what the Bible said? Well, you know, many, I've talked a little bit about Martin Luther and the initial Reformation, but I want to talk a little bit today about a man referred to as the morning star of the Reformation. John Wycliffe. This is because more than a hundred years before Martin Luther, Wycliffe stood by himself in the spiritual darkness before the dawn. He stood for liberty and truth in a very dark age. This was a time when, now, now Wycliffe was, Henry, you'll like this, Wycliffe's family was Saxon. Wycliffe lived in England uh, at a time when more than 90% of the British population could not read or write. A time when the church's corruption was, a, was at an all-time high. Now, John Wycliffe was born, the dates aren't quite clear, would have been 1324-1330. Born on a sheep farm about 200 miles outside of London. Now, at the age of 16, he went off to college. He went to Oxford. Uh, He wanted to study the Bible. He he wanted to do biblical studies. But to do that, what did he have to do? Well, yes, to read. But he had uh, both. What if he learned to read, since it was Britain, they had English language. So what if he learned the English language and learned to read and write in English? Um, Oh, he had to learn Latin. Yes, learning to read in his native language, English, would not have done him any good. Because the Bibles were only in Latin. It was called the Latin Vulgate Bible. So he went to Oxford to study Latin and Greek. Now, while he was earning his degrees at Oxford, let me just kind of explain the background of things that were going on. I'd already mentioned that the, that the church was uh, uh, corrupt. The church was probably the most powerful entity at the time. The kings may have ruled, but the church ruled the kings. Told the kings what to do. So you can imagine the power structure at that time. But this was also the time of something called the Black Death. And this death was sweeping through Europe and sweeping through London. Let me explain something about this. When this... Disease hit London. 200 people a day were dying because of this disease. 200 people a day, if you can imagine. So in just three years, from 1348 to 1350, one-third of the population of Europe died because of this. One-third. And this was going on at the time of John Wycliffe. It caused people to start questioning things because they saw, well, this is no respecter of persons. The poor died. The rich died. The mean people died. Priests and bishops died. So, you know, if if priests and bishops are dying... Maybe what they're teaching us isn't right after all. People during this time of crisis began to question. So Wycliffe was studying. He eventually earned his doctorate degree. He became a doctor of theology. He started lecturing. In 1374, he became a preacher at a church in Lutterworth. I'll mention this a little bit later on. There's this little river that runs through the town of Lutterworth. He spent time, he spent much of his time studying Scripture. Since he was a teacher of Scripture, that's what he focused on, was reading the Scriptures. And what did he do when he was reading the Scriptures? Well, he looked at the Scriptures, he looked at what was going on in the church. He looked at scriptures, he looked at what was being taught in the church, he looked at scriptures, and he saw, wait a minute, that so many things that were being taught in the church didn't line up with what he was reading in scripture. And so he started arguing things like, well, the church, it's wrong to add man-made ideas to scripture. That's wrong. So he believed that the Bible and the Bible alone is the only standard. It's the only place where we can find out what to believe and how to act. It was a big contrast between what the church was and what it ought to be based on Scripture. And of course, Martin Luther would pick up this theme Many years later. But Wycliffe saw the necessity to reform. I mean, Wycliffe, he emphasized biblical teaching, the biblical teaching on faith. Here's what he said He said, Trust wholly in Christ, rely altogether on his sufferings, beware of seeking to be justified in any other way than his righteousness. And man, Wycliffe wrote books. He wrote books. He published books where he was pointing out where the church was wrong, where the church was teaching error. And he taught, he preached. He taught that Scripture was the basis for all Christian doctrine. And it was the only norm for Christian faith. And that Scripture being from God was the only authority. He preached boldly on these things. He also taught the necessity of having a personal faith in Jesus Christ. And this kind of, he, the, they didn't have these things of the Reformation at this time, but basically he already believed two of the major themes or two of the major doctrines of the Reformation, sola scriptura, sola scriptura, the Bible alone or scripture alone, and sola fide, faith alone. Now again, at this time, I just told you that he had to learn Latin to even read the Bible. There weren't any Bibles for him in the English language. And apart from the clergy or trained professors, very few people knew Latin. The majority of the people could not understand it. And the church services, even in English-speaking countries were held in Latin so when the person up front spoke he was speaking in Latin and he was reading the, he wasn't translating from Latin into English he was simply reading in Latin so if I were up here reading in Latin now would you, I wouldn't know that you were talking about reading in Latin <laughs> you wouldn't know it would you I wouldn't know that you were talking about reading, exactly. in, Latin reading in Latin exactly exactly And so you see how dependent the people were on the religious leaders for spiritual instruction? And so Wycliffe published a book called On the Truth of Sacred Scripture. And he called for something radical, something revolutionary. He called for the Bible to be translated into English. Oh, get this though according to the law at that time, translating the Bible, was against the law. It was a heresy, punishable by death. Whoa! Can you imagine? I mean, to me, it's almost impossible to imagine why the church would want to keep God's Word from God's people unless the church wanted to hold power over them. But Wycliffe, now get this, Wycliffe was more convinced of the power of God's Word than of the power of man. He wasn't afraid of man. And so he and a group of colleagues committed themselves to making the Word of God available in English. So they started this work. So in thirteen eighty, the first English translation of the New Testament was completed. And most people they're not quite sure who did all the work. They they think that Wycliffe probably did the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and most of the of the New Testament. In thirteen eighty four, the entire Bible was completed in English. Now it was a Pretty literal translation. It was almost word for word from the Latin Vulgate. And even for English speaking, it was a little bit rough reading. And so one of Wycliffe's followers, a few years later, published a revised version that was much more readable in English. And do you know that this version was the dominant English Bible until William Tyndale's version, about 150 years later? Now, not only did this Bible need to be translated, what else needed to take place? Well, yes, it needed to be copied. It needed to be distributed. Well, did they take it to the printing press to get it copied? Not at this time they didn't. The printing press had not been invented. This was about 60 years before the printing press. So these copies... Had to be painstakingly copied by hand. <gasps> well, despite these challenges, hundreds and hundreds of these Bibles were produced and distributed. Now, Wycliffe had many followers, many pastors that would go out and preach to the common people. They would preach the Word of God. These they were the they were called Lollards. If you ever hear that term. But they this reform was not only in England, but across all of all of Europe. Well, the Catholic Church condemned the Wycliffe Bible. I mean, man, they were furious. The the church, they were upset because Wycliffe had challenged their authority. He had made it possible now for work. Any person. He had made it possible for the ordinary person to read the Bible for themselves. That happened four years after this. Oh, yes. That's right. He made it possible for anybody to read the Bible. And what happens? When people start reading the Bible, they discover for themselves how astray the church was from the teachings of the Bible and from the faith and beliefs of Jesus Christ. Whoa. So anybody caught reading could be subject to heavy fines or even death. Some of Wycliffe's supporters were burned at the stake with the Bible they were caught with hung around their necks. But you know this prohibition seems to have only made the people more interested in reading the banned book. Not only did the English people become more interested, but their desire for literacy increased. And so these, these effects, these efforts in translating and copying and proclaiming the Bible in English were driven by a singular motive. Wycliffe put it this way, it helps Christian men to study the gospel in the tongue which they know best. And he remained convinced of the authority and centrality of Scripture and devoted his life's calling to help Christians study the Bible. He died December 30th of 1384. And years later, there was someone who, in a sense, was a Follower of Wycliffe his name was Jan Hus well he was condemned and burned at the stake and at the same time Wycliffe was condemned they gathered all of the writings that they could find and burned all of his books a few years later Wycliffe's body this is how much the church hated him Wycliffe's body was dug up out of the ground Yuck. And it was burned. And they took the ashes and they threw them into the river Swift. Scattered the ashes. Now there was a uh, English historian who wrote on the life of John Wycliffe. And he said, This little river, the River Swift, conveyed, carried. Wycliffe's remains into the Avon, a bigger river. The Avon into the Sevron, a bigger river. The Sevron into the narrow seas. And then into the main ocean. Thus the ashes of Wycliffe, the emblem of his doctrine, were now dispersed the world over. So instead of getting rid of Wycliffe, in one sense they were spreading him the world over. His body was destroyed, but the Wycliffe Bible would survive. And because of the impact of Wycliffe's teaching and his translation of the Bible into a common language, he is often referred to as the morning star of the Reformation. The morning star is that first light that dispels the gloom of darkness. You know, there's no doubt that Wycliffe lived in a time of moral and spiritual darkness. But through his study of the Word of God, he became convinced, convinced of the need for a thorough doctrinal and a moral reform of the church. You know what? He believed that Reformation could only take place when people possessed the Word of God. And you you think about it. The impact today. Well guess what? There is still a uh, organization called the Wycliffe Bible Translators. Isn't there? Well, what do they do? They're dedicated to translating the Bible into the language of every people on earth. You know continuing the work of Wicklow some 750 years later. Well, I want to kind of wrap this up by just taking a, a look at a Scripture itself. Now, this Scripture is in the Old Testament. It is in Psalms. Psalm 19. You know, David was an example of someone who turned to God for answers. He knew... uh, He understood God's sovereignty. Uh, He knew that an all-sufficient Savior alone had the answers and the power to apply these answers. So I'm going to look at Psalm 19 uh, beginning in verse 7. I'm going to read it. There you go. Right there. The instruction of the Lord is perfect, renewing one's life. Uh, and I'm reading this out of the Christian Standard Bible, so the, uh can't sing it. No. Uh, the testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise. The precepts of the Lord are right, making the heart glad. The command of the Lord is radiant, making the eyes light up. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are reliable and altogether righteous. They are more desirable than gold, than an abundance of pure gold, and sweeter than honey, which comes from the honeycomb. In addition, your servant is warned by them. There is great reward in keeping them. Whoever perceives his unintentional sins. Cleanse me from my hidden faults. Moreover keep your servant from willful sins. Do not let them rule over me. Then I will be innocent and cleansed. From blatant rebellion. May the words of my mouth. And the meditation of my heart. Be acceptable to you. Lord my rock. And my redeemer. You know in. In. These verses, especially starting in verses seven through nine, David makes six statements about Scripture, and if you notice, each title, each each of these statements includes the phrase of the Lord. So David clearly believed that Scripture proceeds from God Himself. You know, verse seven starts off the instruction. Or the law of the Lord is perfect, renewing one's life. You know, David is saying here that God has revealed, He has given us scripture for our instruction. And now that could be what we believe, what we are, or what we do. Perfect is the is a translation of a common. Hebrew word meaning whole or complete or sufficient. So scripture is comprehensive. It contains all that we need, all that's necessary for one's spiritual life. Now there's a kind of an, an implied contrast here with the imperfect, the insufficient, the flawed reasoning of man. God's perfect instruction. What does it do? Well, David said that it affects people by renewing one's life. Or your translation might say restoring the soul. So the Hebrew word translated renewing, it can mean converting, reviving, or refreshing. But I think one of my favorite synonyms for this word would be transforming. So the word life or soul refers to one's person, a self, your heart. So to paraphrase David's words here, it's saying that Scripture is so powerful. Scripture is so comprehensive that it can convert or transform the entire person. Changing somebody into precisely the person God wants him to be. All instruction necessary to bring truth before sinners, truth about themselves and their condition and their destiny, and the remedy, the Gospel, is in Scripture so that the sinner can be saved and sanctified and headed toward eternal glory. Scripture, it says, is trustworthy. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy. And making the inexperienced wise. Testimony, it speaks of Scripture as a divine witness. Scripture is God's testimony of who He is and what He requires of us. What does it mean when something is trustworthy? Your translation might say, sure. Guys, what does it mean if somebody is trustworthy? Trusted or believed? Yes, they can be believed. It means that what is being said here, that the Scripture itself is unwavering, it's <coughs> immovable, it's unmistakable, no mistakes. It is reliable, it's worthy of being trusted. The Word of God provides a foundation on which life. And our eternal destiny can be built upon without any hesitation. And it says here that God's word makes the inexperienced wise. That means that scripture takes the naive, the inexperienced, the undiscerning, the uninformed person and brings to that person individual wisdom. You know, the Hebrew word here for inexperienced or simple, you just might say makes the simple wise, it comes from an expression meaning an open door. It kind of, if you get in your head, this image of a naive person who can't make up his mind if he should close the door or leave it open. That's It's, it's a Hebrew idiom that kind of means that. He's undiscerning, ignorant, or even gullible. But it says here that God's Word makes the person wise. What would you guys rather be? Would you rather remain uh, inexperienced, ignorant, or gullible? Would you choose to to grow grow in wisdom? Grow in wisdom. Well, it says right here that God's Word makes the inexperienced wise. So, and this wisdom speaks of a person who who doesn't just know the facts in their head, but is skilled in the art of godly living. This is the person who submits to Scripture and knows it and knows how to apply it to his circumstances. The Word of God takes a simple mind with no discernment and makes it skilled In all the issues of life. In contrast to the wisdom of men. Which is in reality foolishness. Now David goes on. A third statement about scripture and its sufficiency. He says here. This is in verse 8. The precepts of the Lord are right. Making the heart glad. What are the precepts of the Lord? Do you know what the precepts of the Lord are? Precepts. Some work some translations might say the laws, the guidelines, guidelines for character and conduct. Since God created us, since God created human beings, He must know how we should live to be productive, how we should live for His glory. And you know, He has given us Scripture so that we know how to live in order to glorify Him. And David here says that God's precepts are right. Now, this term right, it, we lose it in our translation. It's, But it's not something that's just right or wrong. That would be too easy. The, the word right has the sense of showing someone The true path. So what it's saying is that the truth of Scripture is the proper path in the difficult maze of life. This is a wonderful confidence for us that God's Word not only provides the light to light our path, it also provides the route before us. The way to true understanding. And... It also answers the question of where does a believer find joy? Where does a believer go to find relief, to find happiness? Where does someone go to find deliverance from sorrow, from anxiety or even depression? Well, the testimony of the psalmist here is that you go to the Word. It is the Word, he says, that rejoices the heart true joy comes from following the word of God from applying its principles from walking in its precepts and its pathway you know Jeremiah in the midst of tremendous human stress a rejection of his message rejection of him as a person I mean the disaster of uh, his entire nation falling <coughs> even in the midst of that he gave great testimony to the joy that comes through the word of the Lord when he said your words were found and I ate them your words became a delight to me and the joy of my heart that's what God wants for us that's how we should feel about his word about scripture it should be a delight to us and the joy of our hearts and this is the reason that you had people like Wycliffe wanting to get the Word of God into the common language so that people could read it for themselves, (coughs) spend time in the Word, and understand that it is the Word of God that brings them joy. You see, the Word of God gives testimony that it in fact is the the source of joy. And when we walk in obedience to the will of God, Rejoices the heart. Scripture is radiant, it says. The command of the Lord is radiant, making the eyes light up. Well, command. If your parents give you a command, do you have the option of not doing it? The option do, but you don't have the option of... Warning of um, a consequence Yes, that's right. Uh, you you have the option of getting the consequence later, right? <laughs> well, command stresses that this that is this is a the the Bible is non optional in its nature. The Bible is not a book of suggestions. It is commandments. These are binding authoritative commandments. This is what God requires. And you know, those who treat it lightly put themselves in eternal peril. Those who take it seriously find eternal blessing. Radiant or pure means lucid or clear. I mean, Scripture is not mystifying or confusing or puzzling. God's Word is a revealing of truth to make the dark things light, to bring eternity into focus and it gives clear direction for life. You know, granted, there are some things in Scripture that may be hard for us to understand, but taken as a whole, Scripture, because of its clarity, brings understanding in places of ignorance. It brings order to confusion. It brings light in the place of spiritual and moral darkness. It stands in a stark contrast to the muddled musings of men who are blind and unable to discern the truth or live righteously. We live in this age. God has revealed uh, His Word to us. Truths that non-Christians will never be able to see. He also says here that Scripture... That the fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. Now, fear here, it doesn't it speaks of a reverential awe that is the attitude we should have for God when we worship Him. So in this sense, Scripture is God's manual on how to worship Him. What is something if it's pure? What does that what does that come what does that mean come to mind what does it mean if you say something is pure um, means it, is clean, it could be clean yes what about the absence of any impurities the the absence of imperfection it means something is perfect scripture is without sin without evil without corruption without error the truth it conveys is, Absolutely undefiled and without blemish. You know, later in Psalm 12, David says the words of the Lord are pure, are they're flawless, like silver refined in the furnace, purified seven times over. And because it is pure, it endures forever. Any change or modification could only introduce imperfection. To something that's already perfect. Heaven and earth will pass away. But my words will never pass away. This guarantees that the Bible is permanent. Unchanging. And therefore relevant to everyone. In every age of history. Scripture is just as relevant to us today. As it was at the time of Tyndale. The time of Luther. The time of Calvin. It's always been and always will be sufficient. Scripture needs no updating, no editing, no refining. Whatever time, whatever culture you live in, it is eternally relevant. It is pure, sinless, inerrant truth. It is God's revelation for every generation. Scripture, the ordinances of the Lord are reliable, it says in verse 9. And they're altogether righteous. The ordinances, the judgments are the divine verdicts from the bench of the supreme judge. The Bible is God's standard for judging life and eternal destiny of every person. Unbelievers cannot know the truth because they're blind to God's Word. Sadly, and being deceived by the devil, they search vainly for spiritual truth. Years ago, a a book came out uh, on dealing with depression, and the very first suggestion was to yell the word "cancel" every time you had a negative thought. <laughs> <laughs> just just think you're walking around and all of a sudden you have a negative thought and you just blurt out loud cancel well the 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 author the author of this book also recommended something called sleep programming play a recording while you sleep that has lots of positive feedback during the day you should listen to positive music and he also they also said it would be helpful to cultivate and a meaningful spiritual philosophy. Find a belief system that works for you. But be sure to avoid people that talk about sin and guilt. Cancel. Cancel. (laughs) The the author's final point was that you're to find the light in yourself. Yeah, cancel. Sadly, that's the best that humans can do. You know, Jesus illustrated this, this hopeless search for truth. He said, why don't you understand what I say? Well, it's because you cannot listen to my word. The one who is from God listens to God's word. You know, so by contrast, believers, we have the truth. What an enormous privilege to have the word of God. You know, because scripture is true it is altogether righteous the implication here is that the truthfulness of scripture produces righteousness in those who accept it scripture as an exhaustive source of truth and righteousness as such obviously we're forbidden to add to it take from it or distort it in any way In Psalm Psalm 119, David gives further testimony to the righteous sufficiency of Scripture. And let me just read a few of these out to you. In Psalm 19, verse 89, Lord, your word is forever. It is firmly fixed in heaven. Verse 128, I carefully follow all your precepts and hate every false way. Verses 137 and 138. You are righteous, Lord, and your judgments are just. The decrees you issue are righteous and altogether trustworthy. Verse 142. Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and your instruction is true. And verse 160. The entirety of your word is truth. Each of your righteous judgments endure forever. You see, there's no need for additional visions, revelations, words of prophecy. In contrast to the theories of men, God's word is true and absolutely comprehensive. You know, David concluded by saying that God's word is more desirable than gold that Scripture is able to satisfy the spiritual appetite sweeter than honey. He's saying nothing is as sweet, as pleasurable, as enriching to the soul as Scripture. Scripture should be our greatest possession valued more than anything and it should be our greatest pleasure. Nothing this world has to offer is more precious than God's Word. Don't forget that people have lost their lives to just own one copy of Scripture. We are called to let the Word of God richly dwell within us. As Paul instructs the Colossians, Let the Word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing admonishing one another through psalms, through hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. So we are to plumb the depths of Scripture and never treat it in a casual manner. We are to discipline ourselves to live according to biblical principles and stand firm on those principles, even when we see others abandoning Scripture for worldly alternatives. There's no substitute for submission to Scripture. Our spiritual health depends on, depends on placing the utmost value on the Word of God and obeying it with an eager heart. The challenge is to say, do not trade the sweet, satisfying riches of God's Word for the world's foolishness. All that's necessary for salvation, for godliness, is in Scripture. It is complete. It's a complete and sufficient revelation of God for life and godliness, to bring truth before sinners, to show them their condition and their destiny, as I said, and to bring the gospel so that sinners can be saved and sanctified and headed to an eternal glory. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word for every bit of it. We thank You, Father, for those who have gone before us who sacrificed their lives, for those who sacrificed their positions, for those who worked hard and diligently to reform the church. Father, we thank You that Your Word is sufficient, that You are sufficient, Thank You for a Bible that leaves out nothing. Thank You for the truths that bring us perfect instruction that renews us, that makes us wise, that brings us joy. Father, I pray that we would be committed to the Word. May we desire Your precepts more than gold. May they be as sweet as honey on our lips. Lord, may we see the sufficiency of Your Word and the power of Your Spirit. May we see it applied to every aspect of our lives. We pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen.